kids are heading out, uh, let's, let's draw our hearts together as we approach the Lord in prayer. Father God, when we are gathered in your name, you have promised to be in the midst of us. And so now, in this moment, we invite you, not because you would not be here otherwise, but because our hearts need to know that we welcome you. Father, we recognize that each one of us, and us collectively, we we are all sinners. No one is clean in our flesh. No one does right or seeks you or is good enough to impress you. Father, we recognize that even those of us who have received Christ and have been made clean eternally in Him, we still stumble every day. We still live like who we used to be instead of who we are in Christ. Oh, Father, forgive us. Your word reminds us in 1 John that if we think we're without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We call you a liar when we think that we are good. And yet, in that same place, you remind us that if we will confess those sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we need that. We need it because we can't approach you with our own filthy hands. We need to come to you with clean hands and a pure heart, and we're not capable of it, so we need you to wash us. We need your spirit to take it away from us. Lord, we confess that we have relied on government as our God. We have relied on medicine as our God. We have relied on religion as our God. We have relied on our own understanding and what we think is right and we've pursued what seems good to us. And we turn from that. We don't want those things, those idols, Lord. Let it all fall away. We want to see only you and to see life through you. So in this moment, Father, as we open your word and as we have sung these songs, we, we ask that you would receive our praise, that you alone would receive all the glory and honor today. And that you would be honored as we open your word. But Father, we need more of you. Not that you have given less of yourself, but we have received less. You have offered us fullness. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And far too often, even we who are your children have chosen other paths, easier paths in our mind, but paths that lead to destruction. Lord, be honored. Enlighten our hearts. Open our eyes and our minds that we would be able to see wondrous and glorious things in your word. 
that we would be changed. Now, Father, protect us as a body from any human opinion. Speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue that we might hear from you alone. Let every other voice be still. Father, you alone must be our vision or we will be blind. These things we pray in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So happy Mother's Day. How many of you mothers have children who outgrew their clothing? Right? Anybody have that happen? If not, then you don't have kids or they're very, very, very young. How many of you had children who outgrew their clothing but didn't want to let go of it, right? I know, you know, that, that Spider-Man t-shirt that my son had when he was like five and he's 13, still trying to fit into it, because it's awesome. I can identify, when I was in middle school, I got the coolest t-shirt, because it was, you know, like 1982, and, you know, I got this, this navy blue t-shirt that said awesome across it. Yeah. When I was a senior, I was still putting that T-shirt on at 50 pounds bigger than I was when I was in 7th grade or 8th grade because I didn't want to let it go. I didn't want to let go of that, that thing that meant so much. It seemed so important at the time. I have no idea what happened to that. I'm sure it got thrown away. At some point, that got put away. I remember trying to save it in, in like this memory box, you know, I packed it up, as the song says. But it didn't fit me anymore. You know, our, our Christian life is a lot like that. Our, our old life is like that. When we have been made new in Christ, when we've been reborn in Christ, those old clothes don't fit us anymore. The, they are out of fashion they don't look right. They don't feel right. Why do we so often cling to them? We hold on to a life that we were running away from anyway. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans 6. What exactly is it that you want to benefit from that? I mean, you're ashamed of it. Why do you want to go back to it? That life is what had you dead and why you needed to be saved. You really want to cling to that old, rotten corpse? Our core reality for today is pretty simple. In Christ, my new walk flows from my new thinking according to my new nature. As we look through this passage, that, that's the resounding theme. In Christ, my new walk flows from my new thinking according to my new nature. Paul has spent the last three chapters here establishing this new nature, and now he's talking about our new walk, and he's making a, a, a very clear comparison between who we used to be and who we are and the difference in our thinking. So as we build this out, that, that's the theme that we want to understand is governing this text. In Christ, my new walk flows from my new thinking according to my new nature. Now, 
if, before I can really understand this core reality, before we can build this out, we need to understand the basic premise that pervades Paul's writing, and, and especially right now in Ephesians in particular, we see it. The, the thinking and conduct of a child of God is fundamentally different than that of the world. Now, that, that's pretty easy for us to, to recognize. The thinking and conduct... What's, what's in my mind, what I believe, what my self-talk, the way I view things, my worldview, the way I understand everything that's going on, and my conduct, how I live in light of that, my behavior, the things that I do, the way I talk, the way I present myself, the things I wear, the people I spend time with, the music I listen to, the TV shows I watch, all of that stuff... When I'm in Christ, the thinking and conduct of a child of God are fundamentally different than that of the world. The world around us does not see things the way we see things in Christ. And we didn't either before we were in Christ. This is the message of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. It's the message of the gospel. You can't escape this if you're reading the Bible. It was actually the picture that was alluded to throughout the entire Old Testament. Here's the people of God, and they're different by God's design. In Leviticus, he tells them, I have called you out. I have separated you. I've called you apart from the nations to be separate, that you should be mine. This is the idea of holiness. Holiness being set apart, other different. God has set his people apart. Every single one of us falls short of God's glory. Every single one of us are, natures, are by nature objects of his, of his wrath, his just condemnation and judgment. And if we don't see that, if we don't present that aspect of the good news, the bad news has to precede the good news or the good news is meaningless. There is zero point. I'm going to tell you this as clearly as I can. There is absolutely no point in going to church unless you are having a personal encounter with God because you are in Christ. Coming to church will not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's will make you a hamburger. It won't. You can park yourself in your garage all day and you will not become a car. Parking yourself at church doesn't change you either. But this is where the people of God gather, where the truth of God is spoken. And so coming here gives you the opportunity as a child of God to be gathered with your family. And if you are not a child of God, if you have not received Christ by faith, I'm going to explain this a little bit more, but if not, then you are here as a guest of the family. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you go to real life or you're from Berlin. It doesn't matter. You're part of the family. Now, understand that being separated from God by sin is our nature. But God, in His great love for us, made His only begotten Son a sacrifice of atonement for us. That means Jesus took our place. He was the substitute. The judgment that was supposed to fall on me... The scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. 
Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That was mine. That's the debt I owed for my sin. I can't make up for that by trying to do good deeds because the price is death. But Jesus, God's only son, became sin for me, for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place. That's an incredible, unbelievable thing. And we really only grasp it fully when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and lets us see what our flesh is too callous, too hard to see. When we do, when we recognize this, that He did this for us while we were still His enemies, He made us His children, then we can receive it by faith. Jesus died in our place. God saved us by His grace. And if we'll receive that grace by faith in Christ, trusting that who He is is exactly who He said He was, and that what He did is enough to cover all of our sins and give us new life. We die with Him on the cross. We are raised to new life in Him. If we recognize that and receive it by faith, then the Word tells us that He gives us new life, new identity. He gives us His own Holy Spirit actually living in us, making us His own fully accepted and dearly loved children. That's huge. Just, just let it sink in. I don't, I don't have a lot of preaching to do about this. I just, I just need us to think about it. God took us, the perpetrators, and said, you are mine. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit. You're dead in your sins, and I'm going to make you alive in Christ. <laughs> and we thought it was our free will that gave us that, because we're so holy that we're going to choose God. I don't have it in me. I'm too hard in my own sin. I needed God to change my heart. This reality is the difference between a child of God and an object of wrath. The fundamental differences between those who belong to Christ and those who do not are reflected in both thinking and living. The fundamental differences between those who belong to Christ and those who do not are reflected in both our thinking and our living, how we walk it out every day. It shows up. So if you think you're a Christ follower, but your life looks like everybody else around you, you might want to check yourself. If you think you're a Christ follower and you claim Christ, but you see the world through the world, in other words, your natural senses are your measure of reality, you might want to check yourself. You might be playing games. There are three things we're going to see here in these differences and how it's reflected. First, we're going to see it in who we were. Then we're going to see it in who we are. Then we're going to see it in what we do. Right. So there's three areas we're going to look at. First, who we were in the flesh. Notice this. The old life is worthless without even knowing it. The old life 
is worthless without even knowing it. Take a look in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 at verses 17 to 19. Here's what Paul says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer, I would emphasize no longer, live as the Gentiles do. Some of your translations may have Gentiles in quotes because Paul is making a point here that he's already said there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. But the Gentile, the outsider, the nations, that's who you were. So he's using it here as a synonym for unbelievers so that he can make his point of unity because it's only in Christ that Jew and Gentile are removed. In the flesh, we have all of our fleshly divisions that we come up with. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do, as those who don't know, who are outside and don't know Christ, in the futility of their thinking. In the futility of their thinking. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Ignorance due to hardening. Having lost all sensitivity, ignorance due to hardening has caused them to lose all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. First, we point out sensuality is sometimes it's one of those words that we can confuse with others. It's not sensual is not the same as sensuous. It's not the same as sexual. It's not that. It's a reliance on my senses. Sensuality, following my own passions, my own urges, my own desires. As my mind sees it to be right, I do it. Boom. Period. There is no outside authority. I do what I want. That's sensuality. Now, the NIV here is an outlier in, in translating verse 19. The rendering that they are full of greed, um, it's of the major translations, it's the only one that renders it that way. Most of them render it, as I think is a better rendering, a better understanding of, of this particular uh, Greek passage, is that they do so with a continual lust for more. They greedily pursue their own sensuality they do what they want and they never stop wanting they want to keep on doing what the what the human understanding what the human passions and urges desire more and more and more if we're honest with ourselves i think we can all relate to that maybe a simple illustration is me with pizza i can eat a piece of pizza and be full. Now, I, when I was 18, it was different. But now, I can eat a piece of pizza and be pretty full. And I still want more. Then I get that fourth piece of pizza. And I think I'm going to throw up. But I still want more. You see, the old life, living by our senses, by our own passions, takes us to that place where it fills us up with these temporary pleasures and sin is pleasurable for a season. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation, right? Who wants to do what isn't pleasurable? But when I do this, it will fill me up with this fullness. It's not going to last, but it actually makes me sick to the point where I, I might even want to throw up this life, but I still keep craving more. That's the picture. 
that we have here. The old life is worthless without even knowing it. He calls it the old life because we were all in this place. We were all Gentiles. Now, according to the, the human understanding of Jew and Gentile, most all of us here are Gentiles. We are non-Jews. We are among the nations as opposed to Israel, ethnically. However, what Paul has established over and over again and really driven home here in Ephesians is that in Christ, none of that matters. There's no Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. None of that matters. What matters are is, are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, you're alive. And if you're not, you're dead. If you're in Christ, then we are all brothers and sisters. Because if you have trusted him, if you have received him by faith, then you are united to him. And if you're united to Christ, and I'm united to Christ, then we're united to one another in Christ. Capiche? We all together here? So this old life, who we used to be, B.C., before Christ, is worthless, it's futile, it's empty. It goes nowhere. And we're not even aware of it. Notice this. Sin darkens our ability to understand reality. Sin darkens our ability to understand reality. In this futility of our thinking, verse 18 says, they're darkened in their understanding. What does that mean? It means I can't see. If you walk into a dark room, there's no windows, there's no lights, you can't see anything. Your eyes are doing the same thing, but there's no light. The objects are still there. They don't disappear when you turn the lights off. But there's no light, so you can't see. Apart from Christ's Spirit in us, we can't see reality because of the darkness that's in us. I won't have you turn there, but you can look for your own homework in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 points out that, that God's wrath is being poured out on mankind because we've suppressed the truth in our wickedness. God's made himself obvious. You've got to talk yourself into atheism. I don't know if you realize that. It, it's, it's obvious, and, and we're wired for it. We're created in his image, so there's a void in us, what the philosophers called the God-shaped hole. And everything in creation, all of science, points to God. From solar systems and galaxies to atoms and subatomic particles, we see the orderliness, a system of authority and submission built into all of it. In so many aspects of life that physical science doesn't account for. The natural, what we observe, can't explain. But the supernatural, that which is beyond our natural observation, is clear in Christ. So in Romans 1, we see this suppression to the point of a darkening even of our intellect. We don't see things rightly. Notice second, not only does sin darken our ability to understand reality, sin calluses our hearts against recognizing real life. 
Sin calluses our hearts against recognizing real life. Uh, now, some of you, for whatever reason I cannot explain, only God knows, go around barefoot. I don't know why anybody does that. If God wanted you to go barefoot, he wouldn't have given you shoes. And you have calluses on your feet. My daughters are dancers, and they have unbelievably calloused feet, right? Not me, because I'm a Christian, so I wear shoes, right? I'm kidding, daughter. Sort of. So, anyhow, the calluses are places, if you have working hands, you have calluses on your hands, because it's places where, where stuff's rubbing up against it, right? It gets rough, and it gets hard, and what happens is you build up these layers of skin, and in the calluses, you become desensitized. Your fingertips, for most of you, have, have you know, you can feel a lot of things. There's a lot of nerve endings there. But in the pads of your hands where you may have some bigger calluses, you don't feel as much. In those calluses on your feet, you can poke it with a pin. Try it sometime. It's fun. Sometimes the sermon just goes too far, doesn't it? It's way too far. If my mother were in here, I'd be chastised. But you don't feel it. Because something is built up over the sensitivity. Something is covering those nerve endings. That same thing happens in our hearts. Sin calluses our hearts against recognizing real life. Notice what he says here. They're darkened in their understanding in verse 18. And they're separated from the life of God because... Okay, so what comes after is why they're separated from the life of God. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them okay they're ignorant of the life of god they don't know it they're not aware of it they don't perceive it they don't pick it up why due to the hardening of their hearts their hearts have been hardened and again when we say they that's referring to all of us before christ we have been calloused the sin in us in our nature and in our actions and in our thoughts has rubbed us enough to take away our sensitivity so we are not able to perceive real life in God. John 3.19 tells us that the light has come into the world, but we loved darkness more than light. Romans 8 verses 5 to 8 talk about the mind controlled by the flesh. Your NIV renders that the sinful nature. The mind that's controlled by the flesh and the sinful nature doesn't submit to God. It's hostile to God. It's not even capable of submitting to God. Why? Because of exactly what he's saying here. In ourselves, in our flesh, we're darkened in our understanding. We are ignorant of the God life, of the real life, because our hearts have become hardened. That's a really bad place to be. Dangerous things happen when you don't feel. One of the primary reasons that leprosy was so dangerous was not rotting flesh, it was the loss of nervous sensitivity. So you don't feel pain. And bad things happen when we don't feel. You can recognize how easy it is to become hardened in this world. 
And the more you've been hurt, the more you've been betrayed, the more you've walked a hard life or walked a bad life by your own measure. You know, you build up calluses on your heart. Those defense mechanisms that guard you so you won't be hurt again. They also guard you against letting God in. Sin calluses our hearts against recognizing real life. The old life is worthless without even knowing it. Sin darkens our ability to understand reality. Sin calluses our hearts against recognizing real life. Notice this. Sin dominates life according to human passions. Sin dominates life according to human passions. Our passions, our sinful nature, our old way of thinking becomes our Lord. Before we're in Christ, we are ruled by, we are dominated by, lorded by our sensuality, our passions. Again, excuse me, looking at verse 19. Having now lost all sensitivity, having been calloused, and therefore being ignorant of the God life, the real life, they, those who are outside of Christ, unbelievers, have given themselves over to sensuality. Okay, they, It's not like they chose an evil path. They're just doing what comes naturally. Maybe you've heard that before. Just do what comes naturally. That's what unbelievers do. It's our nature. We do what comes naturally. We do what feels good, what causes pleasure or escapes pain. We've given ourselves over in that state. To sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. This idea of giving themselves over is a picture of submission. We are submitting to our passions as if we are slaves to them. James 1.14 says that each one is tempted when you're dragged away by your own evil desires and enticed. And then that, that desire gives birth to sin, and that sin gives birth to death. That's how it works when we're in the flesh. It dominates us, it rules us, and we submit to it. Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I'd love to have you turn to Romans 6 here, but we're going to turn there later, so I'm going to save it. If you're in Ephesians, it's the book just preceding, so you probably only go on a page or two. Galatians is a fantastic book in understanding the freedom that we have in Christ. And in this very passage... He is describing our freedom from slavery to sin. Galatians 5, let's look at verses 16 and 18. 16 through 18. Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit. There's a, a foundation already laid. He's presuming here that you are in Christ. Therefore, the Holy Spirit of God resides within you, leading you into the God life. And he says, walk by the Spirit. Surrender yourself, not to your passions, but to the Holy Spirit of God. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Okay, So the God spirit in you as a Christ follower is competing with your natural desires, your natural flesh, because your natural flesh has been corrupted by sin. All of us are born with it. Ever since Genesis 3, it's been a part of us. When we talk about original sin, there are different uh, doctrinal definitions of that. What we mean by original sin, the central truth of original sin is this sin that we inherit from Adam and Eve that comes down through us. That is original sin. It sticks with all of us. It's part of who we are. We are not (laughs) sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. So he says, I say walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Another rendering is that you do not do whatever you want. What you want to do in the Spirit is not what you want to do in the flesh. I think we can all recognize that from our experience. Romans chapter 7 is a great picture of that. You might jot it down as a place to look later. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now notice what he says coming up here after this, is this first paragraph that follows is the picture of what happens when we live according to the flesh. He says the the acts of the flesh, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. It doesn't take a whole lot to recognize it. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, we already are kind of hearing what Paul says in Ephesians, right? So as we're giving ourselves over, we're surrendering ourselves to the lordship of our own senses and passions, we indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me just stop for a second to say, if you are a Christ follower, and what we just read describes your life you need to take a very serious look there is no place in the life of a child of God for these things we dare not we cannot celebrate or excuse them that doesn't mean you won't struggle with them but there's a big difference isn't there between struggling and celebrating Now, I wrestle with my temper. Oh, buddy, you have no idea. I wrestle with my thoughts, the things in my head that get controlled by the time they come in front of you. But man, i got to wrestle in private with the Lord on these things. But as a Christ follower, I can't let that live. i got to mortify the flesh. i got to put it to death because it doesn't fit me. But in my old self, that's just natural, right? It makes sense. You hit my car, I'm going to yell at you. Because that's it. That's how it works, right? You wrong my child, I'll destroy you. You treat me unjustly, 
I will seek revenge. If I want it, I will take it. I will find a way to get it. That's the natural way. If you're not sure about that, just watch the animal kingdom. Right? There's not a whole lot that, that goes on out there that is in check. It's just what happens naturally. So when we watch TV shows out on the savanna and the lioness kills the gazelle and eats it, nobody says, wow, what a wicked moral creature that is. It's nature taking its course. Now, it might be disgusting. You might not like it, but that's how nature works. Nature is savage. Why? Because they just do what comes naturally. When you and I do what comes naturally, we are no better than savage beasts. But in Christ, we have something else, something different. Sin dominates life according to human passions. Now, he continues in verses 22 and following to give us a better picture. So the acts of the flesh, the natural way, is all that stuff that's, that's obvious and not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 22 and following says, but the fruit of the Spirit, not something I muster up, not something that I, I work out in a legalistic kind of perfection in my checklist religion, but when God is in me, because I have received the grace of God in Christ through faith, and He has placed within me a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance, His own presence in the person of His Holy Spirit, then this is what will grow. This is what comes from that root in me. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance. You might have patience in your rendering there. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things do not come naturally, right? How many of you have ever had to correct your, your two-year-old for having too much patience? Too much self-control? Come on. Nobody has to train kids to do bad stuff, right? Because it's in us. To borrow from Pastor Vody Bauckham, that's not a cute little angel. It's a viper in a diaper. That's the reality of every single one of us. It's our nature. The sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can surrender who we were to Christ and let the Spirit change us from within so that we can bear these fruits. Notice what he says after this uh, in uh, the end of verse 23. Against such things, the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law. Now you might think, well, why does he need to say that? Who would have a law against that? Yeah, that's the point. The things that come naturally are exactly why we need laws. The reason you have government is to restrain evil, to protect victims. Now, we do a whole lot of other things with government, but the point is that we need laws to restrain what comes naturally. Exactly the opposite of what we hear so often in modern culture. Well, I was just born this way. I just do whatever. You can't tell me what to do. You can't legislate morality. I just want to point out. I just want to point out the definitional foolishness of that. If it is legislated, it is by definition morality. All legislation is saying this is good, this is bad. So stop saying you can't legislate morality. 
If you have a speed limit, it's moral, because that's the nature of legislation. But I digress. Let me take a breath. Coming back now. There's no law against the things in the, of the Spirit because you don't need that. The things of the Spirit are good and pure and holy. You don't have to restrain somebody from being kind or good or faithful or having self-control. We don't need to tell people, stop being gentle. That, that doesn't have to happen. Against these things, there, are no law. there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, in verse 20, 24 crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is a powerful reality. In our old life, who we were in the flesh, sin darkens our ability to understand reality, it calluses our hearts against recognizing real life, and it dominates life according to human passions. The old life is worthless without even knowing it. So let's move on. If that's who we were in the flesh, let's talk about who we are in Christ. The new life is not lived according to the flesh. The old life was. The new life is not lived according to the flesh. It's not according to what is natural, but what is supernatural. It has nothing to do with whether you were born a particular way. It has to do with whether you have been reborn. The new life is not lived according to the flesh. Verses 20 to 21. After giving this picture of what it's like as a Gentile, as an outsider, as an unbeliever, who we used to be dead in our sins, he goes on to say, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verses 20 and 21 point out the contrast between the old life and the new life, the flesh life and the spirit life, the worthless life and real life. That, however, is not what you learned when you received Christ. If we go back to the earlier part of chapter 4, um, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, there is a maturity that is required in our growth. If we're in Christ, just as a baby who has been born must grow. It's, it's natural for it to grow when it's healthy, but it also requires effort. It has to be nourished, it has to exercise, otherwise it's not going to grow, right? The same thing is true for us spiritually. And he says... Uh, looking at verse 11 of chapter 4, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people, that's all of us, for works of service, serving one another in the church, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. That's a, a unity of, of doctrine as we grow up into him. And in the knowledge, that relational knowledge of, of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Right? We're not going to be tossed about by all the false teachers. Somebody's got a big smile. Somebody's got a great book. Somebody's got a, a clever podcast. That preacher's got a lot of talent. We're not going to be 
caught up in that stuff because we're going to be grounded with maturity. Instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. That's what Christ followers do. Because of love, we speak truth. We always speak truth with the motive and manner of love. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head. That is Christ. And he goes on to show our, our entirety, that we are all ministers in this body. From Him, verse 16, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the springboard for what comes after it. Don't live like you used to live. That's not right. It doesn't fit. But who you are leads you in a different direction. The new life is not lived according to the flesh. Notice the contrast. In, in the old life, sin darkens our ability to understand reality. However, in Christ, we reckon reality rightly. Yes, that is one of my favorite phrases. Been using it for years. We'll keep coming back to it. In Christ, we reckon reality rightly. In other words, we see and understand what is real, not just what seems real. If I'm going according to my flesh, according to my senses, my human passions, there are a lot of things that I can justify, a lot of things that seem right. Well, what could be wrong with that? That doesn't seem to hurt anybody. Why could you why would you say anything is wrong between two consenting adults? Don't I have the right to, to get more? Is it fair? We judge these things according to our own understanding. But in Christ, we're able to see a different reality. In Christ, we're able to see that what feels good doesn't necessarily mean it is good. Now, obviously, we can recognize that when it comes to fleshly things. I know that that brownie might be delicious, and it may not be, possibly the healthiest thing in the world i will just contend for you if it is it, it's not delicious i'm just going to say that there's no such thing as a healthy delicious brownie those things don't work right so stop trying let your dessert be dessert let your health food be healthy separate soapbox so i can see that in natural things I can recognize that just because I want this new car, I may not be able to afford that car. Just because I can get a loan to pay for that car, that might not be very smart. That might come back to bite me in the keister later. So in the flesh, I can make those kind of reasonable decisions. I can have that sort of earthbound, worldly, temporal wisdom. What I can't do is discern the things of God in my flesh. Because I'm darkened in my ability to understand it by sin. I don't understand the things of God rightly, but in Christ, my eyes have been opened. And I can rightly reckon reality. Uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, if you can just flip the page and go back there, this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. He's established this, this beauty of what God has done in choosing them, in adopting them, in predestining them to be conformed to the likeness of Christ in true holiness and righteousness. All of this for the praise of God's glorious grace. And then in verse 15, it says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This has to come from God. 
the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Notice verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that light may come into the room so you are no longer stumbling around in darkness, but you can see what is already there. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. Focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. The more tightly we cling to Christ, the more loosely we hold to the concerns of this world. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37, Paul and uh, I'm sorry, Peter and John and, and the other disciples are gathered together because Peter and John uh, were arrested for preaching the gospel and uh, God broke them out. So they get together. The first thing in their mind is, we got to get with God's people. Boy, I wish we had that attitude. I wish we had that, that way of thinking. That being gathered with God's people is so important that the first thing that I think of is I got to get with God's people. Something terrible happened in my life. I got to get with God's people. Pray for me. Something wonderful happened in my life. I got to get with God's people. Rejoice with me. How often we put the body of Christ on the shelf. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37, the Holy Spirit has enabled Peter and John and the others to see the reality of Christ as supreme and more precious than anything. And that changed everything. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit had come into them and what they couldn't see before as they were huddled cowards uh, abandoning Jesus at His time of greatest need. And then following His crucifixion, they were despairing, wondering what was going to happen next. They didn't understand everything that he had said, even though it was very plain, until after the resurrection, when he clarified it, and he opened their eyes. And when the Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2, and the church was born, and every believer since has had the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, they became no longer a huddled group of chickens, they became lions. And they went out, and Peter immediately, the same one who denied Jesus, goes out and, and preaches in the middle of the street to all these people who are mocking them. And by the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people are like, dude, what do I have to do to be saved? You have cut me to the heart. That happens when the reality of who Christ is trumps the reality of your experience. When you recognize that what seems real is one thing, but what is real and eternal is the reality of Christ. Because of that, the reality of Christ was bigger than their imprisonment, bigger than their comfort, bigger than their possessions. And by the end of that passage, they have let go of the stuff of earth they're throwing all their possessions in together. Barnabas even sells a field so he can bring the money to the church. They don't care anymore about the stuff of this earth. Instead, they have taken hold of the winds of heaven. They've taken hold of real life. When we get it, we get it. When we connect the dots and begin to understand the whys of life, we gain a clarity that otherwise eludes us. These first believers in Acts 4 got it. 
they had truly come to understand who Jesus was and is and what he had done. And the Holy Spirit connected the dots inside them. In Christ, we reckon reality rightly. Next notice, in Christ, our hearts desire God above all else. In Christ, our hearts desire God above all else. The Lord promises in the Old Testament that He would give His people in that day a new heart. He would take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, a heart that responds to Him. Just a a few pages after where we are in Philippians 1. You can turn there since it's short. It's the very next book. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, the one who used to persecute Christians, having been changed by Christ, says in in, uh, verse 21 of chapter 1, For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. He's been telling them, look, I I don't know, I'm in prison, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. But ultimately, it's kind of a tough choice. We don't really think of death as a tough choice, do we? And if we do, it's not for the same reason. Paul's like, man, if I stay, I I can do a lot of work here. If I stay, I can tell more people about Jesus. I can point more people to Him. But man, it would be so much better to be with Him face to face. I can't wait to get on the other side of the curtain. But if I go, then you know, then you don't have me here to help minister to you. So he's torn. But his point here is to, for me to live Christ. Nothing else matters. Turn to the page to chapter 3 of Philippians. See what he says in verse 10 there. His, his burning passion in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Whatever else doesn't matter. Whatever was gained to me is loss. Whatever I thought was my strength or my wealth or my comfort, it's worthless. It's like dung. It's rubbish, garbage. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings. That's a powerful thing. I want to become like Him in His death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He goes on, and it's not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, and take this to heart, Christian, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There is a passion in Christ Our hearts desire God above everything else. The picture in the Psalms of a deer panting for water. This is the desire of a heart reborn in Christ. A new creature. Next, we see that in Christ, we rejoice to do God's will. This is a contrast with being dominated by our human passions. Having our passions be our Lord. Turn to Romans Back to the left, right before uh, these shorter letters. You'll see the Corinthian letters right before that is the book of Romans. If you get to Acts, you went a little bit too far. Romans chapter 6. You may want to mark it. We'll be back here before we finish. 
In Christ we rejoice to do God's will. Notice in Romans 6.14 he says, For sin shall no longer be your master. It was your master, but now you're in Christ. You have a different Lord. Your master is Christ. You want to obey Christ, not your passions. Sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law but under grace. Turn to chapter 7. Look what he says in verse 22. For in my inner being... By the way, this is in the middle of Paul saying, I keep on sinning even though I don't want to sin. Man, I'm an apostle. I'm writing these letters. I'm building churches and I'm still struggling. So if you're wrestling as a Christian with the fact that you're still struggling with sin, that means you're not dead yet. Because Paul's struggling with sin. He said, man, I, I want to do right, and yet I do wrong. And I want to avoid wrong, and I keep finding myself there. Why is that? And, and as he's wrestling with that, he says in verse 22, <laughs> for in my inner being... In, in, in my will, who I really am, I delight in God's law. Another translation says, my will joyfully conforms with God's will. In Christ, we rejoice to do God's will. Who we are is dramatically and fundamentally different than who we were. So let's take a look at what we're to do in keeping with that change. What are we to do? If that's who we were and that's who we are, then what are we supposed to do about it? Check this. Living that reflects the reality of Christ flows from thinking that reflects my identity in Christ. Let's say that again so you can get it written down. I want you to get it in your heart. Whether you get it on your paper or not, you want to get it in your heart. Living that reflects the reality of Christ flows from thinking that reflects my identity in Christ. You can keep Romans marked. We'll be back there in just a moment. But take a look at verses 22 and 24, or through 24 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. So we've been going through this. He's insisting that we no longer live as who we used to be because who we are is dramatically different, right? That's not the way of life that you learned. What did you learn? Verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, that old identity, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. It's telling you this is good, but it's not good. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, your new identity, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Living that reflects the reality of Christ Christ is the fullness of God, the invisible God made visible for us. The fullness of the deity resides in Him. When you see Jesus, you know the character and nature of God the Father. Living that reflects the reality of Christ flows from thinking. I no longer think the way I used to according to worldly thoughts, but now I have the mind of Christ. I used to think of Christ from a worldly perspective, but no more. Now, I see through Christ by the Holy Spirit. It flows from thinking that reflects my identity, my new self in Christ. All right, let's roll through these. First, remove the old junk. Remove 
the old junk. You were taught to put off your old self, the old junk identity that you used to have. In John chapter 11, I won't have you turn there, but it's the story of Lazarus. So you might jot it down and check it out for your homework. It's, it's listed for you in your program. In John chapter 11, Jesus shows up at the grave of his friend Lazarus. And, and long story short, he raises him from the dead. Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Jesus has this fantastic, fantastic word for his sister Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is about Martha's faith. Will she trust Christ? But then he goes to the grave, and he has them open the tomb. Lazarus has been in there four days. Let it sink in. To which in the King James, Lazarus' sister responds, Behold, he stinketh. Lord, don't, I don't think you want to do that. There's a dead guy in there. In reality, there's probably lots of dead guys in there. That was the norm. As they would, these tombs would hold many people. And Jesus speaks into the grave and says, Lazarus, come forth. Some preachers would tell you it's a good thing he said Lazarus so they would have all come forth. I'm pretty sure that God knows what he's doing, but the point is still there. Lazarus comes out, and the last thing that Jesus says in this story, as Lazarus comes out wrapped in the grave clothes, right? so they, they, they essentially mummify them. Not, it's not quite that, but they're wrapped up in these clothes that you might look at and think in terms of a mummy. So he's alive, but he's still bound up in what was fitting when he was dead. And Jesus, who raised him to life, says, loose that man, set him free. Take off the grave clothes. They don't fit anymore. Those old clothes belong to a dead man, not to a resurrected life. Notice this. Grave clothes do not fit the resurrection life. Remove the old junk. Grave clothes do not fit the resurrection life. I told you we'd be back in Romans 6. Let's take a look at it. I told you to mark it, and I didn't mark mine, so give me a sec. Romans chapter 6 describes this very thing, starting with verse 5. For if we have been united with him, with Christ, in a death like his, okay, we identify with him in his death on the cross by faith, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, 
This is where the rubber meets the road for us. All of that was to help us understand what has happened in Christ. Now, because of what has happened in Christ, in the same way, count yourselves or reckon yourselves dead to sin. Understand that that's who you are. You are now, you were dead in sin. Now you're dead to sin. And you need to start thinking of yourself that way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Remember, the the life that's controlled by sin, our sensuality, our senses, our passions, are, are our Lord. Unfortunate combination of words there. That's the reality. And he's saying, that's not you. So stop living like your senses, your passions, your urges rule over you. They don't. You need to get your mind wrapped around that you're now dead to sin and alive to God. So don't let sin reign. Don't let it be your Lord. Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's back to Ephesians 2. We were dead. In His great mercy, He's given us life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. That's Romans 12.1. Make your body a living sacrifice in view of His mercy. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Keep it marked. We'll come back. Remove the old junk. Grave clothes do not fit the resurrection life. Notice this. Receive a new outlook. Receive a new outlook. What does he say? Okay, so uh, in, in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to remove the old junk, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to receive a new outlook. Notice that the being made new is in the passive voice. You're not doing it. You are having it done to you. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So you need to get a hold of a new outlook, as Patty LaBelle would say, a new attitude. Nobody gets that. Thank you. Somebody. Somebody remembers the 80s. Anyway, receive a new, lo- a new outlook. If we receive a new outlook, then we need to, to understand this. Old thinking leads to old feelings and behaviors. Old thinking leads to old feelings and behaviors. I need a new attitude in my mind. I need a new outlook. I need a new way of understanding things, a new paradigm, a new worldview, a new framework, so that I am seeing things rightly, because if I continue to think like who I used to be, if I continue to wear the grave clothes of a dead man, I am not going to be able to thrive in this life. If I'm living according to what seems real rather than what is real, if I'm living according to who I used to be and I think like the world, then I'm going to fall into the same types of feelings and the same types of behaviors that I had when I was in the world. No longer live like the Gentiles. No longer live like who you used to be. But instead, take on a new way of viewing life, a new attitude in your mind, one that flows from and is in keeping with who you are in Christ. Jump back to Romans 6. 
Picking up from verse 14, we've read it twice now. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's the idea of license. We have this whole movement in in Christian circles that says, you know, Jesus died, God is love, blah, 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 blah. Do whatever you want. It's all good. I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little. It's okay. God doesn't care. You know, drink is not that big of a deal. I know I got drunk last weekend, and and I know the Bible says not to get drunk, but God's cool with it because Jesus is my homeboy. These are damnable thoughts. And we must put this type of thinking to death. It does not belong to who we are. Not in any way. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Either way, <coughs> someone, in the words of that great 20th century philosopher Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. Right? Somebody's going to be your master. It can be, it can be sin. If you, uh, if you make yourselves a slave to sin, it leads to death. Or you can make yourself a slave to Christ in obedience. And it leads to righteousness. 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, <coughs> pardon me, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I mentioned Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, in light of God's mercy... Offer yourselves, offer your bodies, offer your very lives as a living sacrifice to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will test and approve what God's will is, His good, perfect, pleasing will. This is important for us to recognize. Thoughts drive behaviors. Behaviors impact feelings. I've had to try to teach that to young athletes over and over again. We don't do what feels right. We practice what is right until it feels right. I have to change how I think. I have to change how I move because anything that is foreign to me, that is new, doesn't feel right has nothing to do with whether or not it is right. I can tell you at 52 years old trying to get down to field a ground ball don't feel right. But if I'm going to try to field a ground ball, there's only one good way to do it. And I have to practice and train myself if I'm going to do that. By the way, softball sign-ups in the back. Don't make me field ground balls, people. Our thinking drives our behaviors, and our behaviors impact our feelings. I cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with my thinking. I can't behave consistently over time in a way that's inconsistent with how I see myself. So if I continue to think of myself as a sinner in that old flesh that that's what rules me, that's the way I think, that's what's natural to me, if I can continue to see myself that way, 
to think like a pauper, then I will continue to behave like a pauper. But when I recognize that I have been reborn in Christ, I am now a new creation in Him, and the old is gone, the new is here, and I begin to think of myself primarily not as an American, not as a Republican or a Democrat, as black or white or gay or straight or whatever else. All of these human forms of identity are rooted in the flesh. And when I begin to understand that because Christ died, by His grace, God has made me His child. And I see myself primarily as a child of the one true King. And I begin to live in a way that fits. I begin to think with the mind of Christ. Lastly, remember your new identity. Remove the old junk, receive a new outlook, remember your new identity. When I adjust my thinking, I need to recognize that it is not a matter of positive thinking or religious checklist behavior but it's a new nature in me. Because Christ died, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The sin that defined my life was nailed to His cross. And the resurrection that defines everything in Him is now my reality. That's why the grave clothes don't fit in my resurrected life. Notice this. Who you are determines what you do. Who you are determines what you do. That's why it's so important for me to to recognize my new identity. I've been changed. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. John 1.12 says that as many as received Him, to to them He gave the right to become children of God. We see in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, everything that's building up to this, the reason that Paul can say to us, don't live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, is because we're no longer that. We've been changed in Christ. We've become something else. I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11, we see a contrast. I alluded to it earlier. It's the contrast between the mind controlled by the flesh, by the sinful nature, and the mind controlled by the spirit. And Paul says the mind controlled by the sinful nature, it, it doesn't submit to God. It does what it wants. Its passions are its Lord. But he says, you are not that. That's not who you are anymore. You are no longer controlled by your sinful nature, by your flesh. Who you are is in Christ. Therefore, you are governed by, you walk by the Spirit and not the flesh. There's a difference. The last passage I'm going to have you look up is just a few pages to to the right of where you are in Ephesians in the book of of Colossians. Skip over Philippians. That only takes a page or so. Colossians chapter 2. 
I love hearing those pages turn. We're going to end with this. Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, by grace, through faith, because you're God's workmanship, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him rooted and built up in him strengthened in the faith as you were taught overflowing with thankfulness see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on christ for in christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in christ you have been brought to fullness he is the head over every power and authority in him You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Notice how this parallels what we're talking about in today's passage. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off. Right? The spiritual circumcision is a putting off of the flesh. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ spiritually. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jump ahead to verse Uh, to chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. New identity, new life, new hope. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. This is who you are now. Since then, that is you. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Hmm. Put those things off. Jump ahead to verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Clothe yourselves, put on the new self. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Undeserving. When God forgave you in Christ, when Jesus went to the cross... You weren't even looking for Him. We were still sinners. He came to us. We need to forgive others that way. Forgive before they're sorry. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, 
whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen and amen. Our memory verse for today was from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. In Christ, my new walk flows from my new thinking according to my new nature. The fundamental differences between those who belong to Christ and those who do not are reflected in both thinking and living. Living that reflects the reality of Christ flows from the thinking flows from thinking that reflects my identity in Christ. Let me try that again since I stumbled. Living that reflects the reality of Christ flows from thinking that reflects my identity in Christ. When I receive Christ by faith and become a new creation in Him, my fundamental nature and identity are changed. All I have is Christ. As a child of God, when my thinking, my way of viewing and understanding life, my framework reflects the truth of God's Word, then my walk will reflect the reality of who Jesus is and the reality that I have been born again in Him, that I am in Christ, a new creation, the old gone, the new is here. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we close out our service today and we declare that all we have is Christ. He's our everything. He's our hope. He's our life. He is the power for us to live in a way that pleases you, that fits who we are. It's all Christ. Remind us that our past sins were nailed to the cross and you have removed them as far as the east is from the west, never to return, that you remember them against us no more. But Lord, let us never forget who we were that we might not become conceited and forget the grace and mercy shown to us. Lord, turn what was shame now into gratitude. Help us to mortify the flesh, to remove the old junk, to put off our old selves, to receive a new outlook from you as we allow you to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Father, help us to remember the difference between who we were and who we are. Help us to remember our identity in Christ, that we might live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.